Matthew chapter 11. And as we've been going through Matthew chapter 11, two weeks ago we started and we were talking about Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had sent his disciples to Jesus and asking him, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one that we have been anticipating for thousands of years that you would come and save your people? And his response was uh, to the disciples to go back. He said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. All of those fulfilled prophecies back in Isaiah of exactly who Jesus was. Uh, I, we just don't know what John's response was. We don't know why John was specifically asking. But Jesus uses this as a time, and he's probably addressing a group of people that included uh, the people that he mentions in the end of chapter 9, who says Jesus looked at the people wherever he went, and he was filled with compassion. He was filled with a love. His heart was compassion for what he saw because he saw the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he is both there with these people who are feeling harassed and helpless, and he's also there more than likely with the religious leaders at this time. And the religious leaders at this time read the Old Testament, and if you've ever read through the Old Testament, specifically like Leviticus and Numbers, you know it's basically just all laws. It's all laws, it's all rules. And the religious leader said, boy, that's not enough. How do we add to that? And that's what they did. They added to it. And so when Jesus says they looked harassed and helpless and they were like sheep without a shepherd, it meant that it was not just from their daily lives, but it was trying to live under the rule of these religious leaders who were constantly pointing out what they were doing wrong constantly telling them they weren't doing it good enough or they weren't good as them and how to live better. On top of that, they were an occupied nation of the Romans, and the Romans had their rules that they were trying to force on the people, and the Romans hated being there. The majority of the Romans that were sent there were battle-tested, battle-proven, because they were constantly under attack from the zealots of the Jewish people. So they didn't want to be there, and they let it be known. And the taxpayers were another burden because they taxed you for going on roads and they taxed you for just about everything. So everyday life for the common person was just trying to survive, trying to just make it through another day. And Jesus is both addressing the people that are just trying to make it through another day, but he's also addressing, it seems, the religious leaders who are the ones doing the oppressing that were also there. And so he doesn't ever waste an opportunity. And so then he goes on in this passage, and he, he, what Derek preached on last week, and kind of says, what your expectations of me are, are wrong. What your expectations of John the Baptist were wrong. And he kind of tells them, you always want your version of Jesus. And then Jesus literally comes in front of you. The Pharisees had their way. They thought, well, finally, when the Messiah gets here, he will rid us of the Romans. And the people thought, well, when Jesus gets here, he's going to be a wonderful military leader, or some thought he'd be a political leader, or some thought he was just going to bring death and destruction to everybody that has ever bothered them in their life, and then they could finally live a happy life. But Jesus shows up, and he's compassionate, and he's loving. 
and he sleeps on the ground, and he was born in a stable to a young, unwed mom. He was nothing of what they had built up in their minds of what Jesus would be. So Jesus now is confronting them on where they are in front of this crowd of people. He goes through the passage just before where we're going to be tonight, and he's telling them, it just seems like you're in it for the entertainment value of what I can do. Like you're going out just to see a, an illusionist perform another trick. You're going out just to see uh, what happens next. But as far as actually turning your heart over to the kingdom of God, as far as actually dedicating to saying, yes, you are the Messiah and I believe you, you just come out the next day to see what happens next. It's just entertainment value is all Jesus was to them. And he tells them in that passage in uh, 20 through 24, he's saying, woe to you cities. If I had performed the miracles in Sodom, if I had performed the miracles in Tyre, if I had performed the miracles in these places, they would have repented, and I've done that here, and you still are just not repenting, not following after. And then we come to this passage, verses 25 through 30, that I just have learned, especially in the last year, year and a half, to just hold on to. to hold on to. And uh, what's interesting, my good friend Mike Seaver, who's actually preaching for me next week, um, a month before the pandemic, we were at a retreat together, and he said, Rob, I just felt God wanted me to, to pray these verses over you. And this is what he prayed. And just so you know, I wasn't going to go into this, but um, it has been a very, 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 very tiring. Tab and I had started Hope Church eight years ago uh, with God leading us, with an incredible team of people that came with us. Um, but it's been tiring, and it's been exhausting. Uh, and then there was this thing that happened called the pandemic, and that there has never been the amount of pastors retire in a two-year span in the country at that, those two years. And still happening. Early retirement. Just left. Had enough. They're out. It was very, very wearing on people in ministry in general. I'm friends at different Bible colleges, and they still are having trouble getting anybody to take religion as a major. And church staffs are understaffed across the nation overwhelmingly. And it was a lot of load on people. And so they were doing a lot. And so uh, we had two years of meeting outside. One year, people, we met outside for the pandemic. The second year, people just wanted to stay outside. Uh, we tried to move inside, and everyone was like, no, please, let's just keep watching owls. So we stayed outside. Uh, and then last year, we had to move locations three times. We moved our office four times, and it just has not seemed to slow down at all. Uh, so when it comes to preaching on being weary and burdened, I wasn't actually going to do this. Don't feel sorry for me. That's not why I'm doing this. There's people in a lot of rough shape. I'm wearing my brand new sneakers, not because I'm trying to make a fashion statement, but because the plantar fasciitis in my right heel is so bad. And the reason it's so bad is because I tore the meniscus in my left knee about a month ago, and Wednesday morning at 4 a.m. I woke up with a kidney stone, and this afternoon I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to preach this, this evening. So if I just collapse, it's good. <laughs> Give me a minute. We'll be all fine. I'll bounce right back in a minute. In tears but bounce back. So anyway, this passage over the last three years has been something that I've meditated on. Uh, last year, our staff read this book, 
Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I started advertising for it last week, and no, I don't get a commission. It just meant that much to me. So I am asking people, read this book this summer, please. It's also available on audiobook. I'll have a couple quotes from there tonight. All of that we lead up to chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Every time the elementary school kids are in here, everybody all week long says, remember, Rob, don't go long. The kids are in there. The two of the longest messages I've ever preached were when kids were in here. Good luck. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. It says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I want to break this up into three sections before we spend a good amount of time in those last couple verses. In verses 25 through 26, we see Jesus' prayer. We see Jesus' prayer in the first two verses. This is just one I want to say really quick. If Jesus was praying, the Son of God the Holy One, perfect, if he was praying to God, asking for help, how much more time should we spend in prayer? How much more time should we find ourselves falling on our knees, falling on our face, praying, asking for God's help, whatever we find our situation in in life? How much more, when a problem arises, should we go immediately to God instead of posting about it? How much more should we immediately call out to God for help no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in? If Jesus, perfect Jesus the Messiah, asked for God's help regularly and regularly spent time in prayer, how much more should we? And I also don't think that it was because Jesus was going for God's help. I think it's because Jesus was God and he was so close to God. So I think it's two parts. Yes, we go to Jesus for help, but also in a close relationship, you always want to be talking to the other person. That when there is an absence of communication, it is very, very noticeable. But then he also says that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. And there he is specifically talking about the religious leaders. He's saying you have hidden uh, your good news, you have hidden the gospel, the good news that, that Jesus will defeat sin and death, and now, at this time, Jesus has defeated sin and death. You have hidden that from the religious leaders, but you have revealed it to the little children. And by that, he both means little children, but also those with a childlike faith, those who just listen. You have to be very careful with some children because they're unbelievably gullible. And it's not that they're gullible, it's just that they have a very short experience in our culture because they're very young and they're new to the language. And so how are we, he says, you must come to Jesus as a little child in just full faith knowing and going. 
There's a story of an author I mention all the time, Dr. Paul Tripp. He has a PhD in theology. And one day his child was hurt. Uh, I think he had gotten hit in the head and actually cut it open really bad and was bleeding profusely to the point where an ambulance had to come and the child was just incredibly calm. And they said, the, the ambulance workers asked him, why are you so calm? And he goes, oh, my dad's a doctor. He said, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> it's that kind of faith of just taking it at Jesus' word, that Jesus is the truth, and so when he says something, we can believe him, and we can walk into it. And more than like the people that seem to constantly follow Jesus, and there are always examples even in Scripture and even now that are different, but it is the people who feel broken and desperate and have tried everything else. They've put their hope in everything else when they call out to Jesus and they realize that he is the answer and they follow him. Then he says, this is what he, this is what the Father, God, was pleased to do. This is what God's will being accomplished, that those with a childlike faith run to Jesus. It doesn't make sense. You would think that the wise and learned, the schooled, the educated, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who are our equivalent of uh, lawyers over and over again, who would have had the entire Old Testament memorized, who would know everything in and out, plus all the other additional rules. It would seem like they would be the ones that were following after God, but yet the Messiah stood in front of them and they didn't want him. He wasn't what they, that wasn't what they had envisioned in being. And so he was pleased. God's will was it was for the people with a childlike faith that came to him. Verse 27 He says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Understand, knowing Jesus is knowing God. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A study was done a couple years ago, and God in America had an 82% uh, approval rating. That's really good, 82% for God. Uh, Jesus was, I think, 70%. You can't have one without the other. You can't believe in God, but not like Jesus and vice versa. Uh, You can only know God through Jesus. In fact, in, in John chapter one, it is the word that Jesus was the word of God. It doesn't translate well to English, but it is literally, he was God-breathed, that Jesus was the spoken word of who he is. And so the word of God, the Bible, is all about who Jesus is, because when we know Jesus, we can know God. But we have to understand that we must know Jesus in order to know God. That is because of what Jesus accomplished when he was beaten and crucified and took our sins on his shoulders and took our sins to the grave with him and our sins remained in the grave and he rose again defeating sin and death so that we can have hope, that we can have victory in life. He did it all. And that's how we know God's heart for us is because we see Jesus living it out and doing what was necessary for God to have a relationship with his creation. So knowing Jesus and and studying Jesus is knowing who God is. They are one in the same. And then third, verses 28 through 30, we see Jesus' heart. We see Jesus' heart and who he is. 
Now, I have no idea where all of your backgrounds are at and how you grew up. Some of you I haven't actually met yet, and I'm looking forward to it. I grew up in church. My father was a pastor, and it was a pretty, uh, what we call legalistic upbringing. A lot of rules. A lot of rules that later on in life I just couldn't find in the Bible. And my view of Jesus, and a lot of times we, we, as humans, this is just my theory, I can't prove this at all, we picture Jesus as our dad, we picture Jesus as our parents, we picture Jesus as our pastor, We've, we have like a, a version of Jesus that we kind of grow up believing that's who he is, or what we were told about him. Oh, don't do that, you don't want Jesus to find you doing that. And we get an idea that Jesus is like a karma dispenser, like, if you do good, he'll let you do good. If you do bad, he's only that. Like, he is watching and waiting to find you messing up. And boy, he can't wait. That's what gives him joy, is when he finds you doing something that's sin. And that's kind of how I grew up, is as long as you could hide something from your parents, you were all good. As long as you could hide it from them, because they were the representative of Jesus for me, you were all good. And it was not until I started first seeing this passage specifically that I started to understand who Jesus really is. That this is Jesus' heart. So I really want you to pay attention for the next hour and a half as I explain this. He says, starting verse 28, I'll read the whole thing again. This time I'll try to keep it together. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Some of your versions might say, I am gentle and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Number one, we see him say, come to me, all you. If you're from the area, that's come to me, all y'all. Come to me, all of you. This is an open invitation for the, for the people that he's going to describe in the following verses. Come to me. This is, an open, this is how Jesus is. It is an open invitation because he loves you. You are his creation. He wants a relationship with you. He was willing to give up his life for you. So when he says, come to me, uh, he wants them to understand that is his heart. It is an open invitation. The problem was there were people there that were relying on themselves, the religious leaders. They were relying on their good works. They were relying on their knowledge. They were relying on what they thought they knew about him. They were relying on making sure they didn't disobey the rules. And in that, they did not see a need for a Savior. They did not see a need for Jesus because they had it on lockdown. They got that. And again, back to Matthew 9, 38 through 40, he says, Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He goes on, come to me all you who are weary. Weary literally means in, this, in, the, in the Greek, weary means that you are exhausted, tired. And you are not just tired, but you are tired through overuse. Or you're tired, you're, you're tired from great strain or, or great stress. And then he follows that up with burdened. I worked at a, a landscaping place one time as a teenager. And we were the largest, I'm not bragging about this, this just was on the t-shirt, 
largest garden supplier in all of New York State. And I worked in the loading zone, and it was a miserable job. And we'd have people come in with their trucks, and they thought very highly of their trucks. And so they'd say, I'll take a ton of that topsoil. And the driver would say, your truck can't handle a ton. He's like, yes, it can. And they would dump a ton in, and that thing would almost sit on the wheels. And you could tell that truck was not built for that amount of weight. And the owner wasn't going to give up. He's like, yeah, that's good. And then you get in, you could see the worry in his eyes as he hoped he could make it home. That picture of a truck that is burdened down with more than it should be handling at that time is what that word burdened means. It means to be loaded up to the fill or overflowing. So those, if you feel weary, if you feel burdened, congratulations, you qualify to come to Jesus. But not just that, the following phrase, and I will give you rest. Something we have to understand is Jesus. If we go back into Genesis and we go through creation, day seven of creation is rest. It wasn't left out. They didn't say that day doesn't count because it was a day off. I personally don't believe that God needed rest. I think this was God through Jesus. Colossians tells us all things were created by him and for him and through him, speaking of Jesus. He created a day set aside for rest because he understood who he had created and that we would need rest. But not just rest. Rest at the invention of time was to spend time alone with God. That's what rest was created for. Was a day off from laboring? Was a day off from exhausting ourselves, from being stressed out? A day off from overburdening our load? A day off from being overused in some capacity? And Jesus loves us so much that he invented that for us. And all of us here tonight are so good at it. We are so good at rest. All of us. That's why I said, who's feeling tired? Nobody said me. Because it's Saturday, right? We all rested today. Or tomorrow. Wait, I got that birthday party. And then I got that other thing. Luckily, the draft ended today. I don't have to worry about that. We are terrible at rest. We are awful at it. To us, any time off needs to be busied up. I remember, and again, as I mentioned, middle of seven kids, I remember going on vacation as a kid and even as a teenager, getting back from wherever we had gone, going, I am never doing that. And for a long time, as an adult, I never did vacation because the thought of it was exhausting. And not until I was married and my wife insisted that we go to the Outer Banks. I'm like, I hate the beach, I hate this. And we were there for about 20 minutes. I was like, oh, I get used to this. This is actually pretty nice. We're bad at rest. Yet it was something that God created for us. Jesus understood the human component of rest and made it part of the human process. And in the Old Testament, he mandated it on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one day that you were to spend uh, just enjoying God, enjoying life, enjoying the creation that God gave you, doing the things where you could delight in the Lord and what he has done for you and what he has given you. Next week, we're talking about the Sabbath a lot more in depth, or Mike is. And it always strikes me whenever the Pharisees called Jesus out, like, hey, your disciples aren't celebrating Sabbath. They're walking through a field with you. Understand, Sabbath was created to spend time with Jesus. That is literally what they're doing. And the Pharisees don't like it. I'll let him preach that next week. 
So he says, I will give you rest. They also instituted on the seventh year, they called it the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was you literally didn't do anything. They also did this. This was mandated, another thing we're not good at, and maybe I'm introducing it to you for the first time. It's called saving money. And so what they would do is the seventh year, they would just let their crops grow and die. They wouldn't do anything with them. They wouldn't work in the fields. They wouldn't do anything that they should have done because of a mandated by God, the the plants would then rot and re-nourish the ground. And what was called, in other words, recreation, that it was going to recreate, it was going to fill the ground with the nutrients from the stuff that rotted, turned into compost, went back into the earth, and then they would have six more years of great crops. And one of the first things they cut out that God reprimanded them for was that. And that brought on famines because the ground got so bad they couldn't grow anything. And all of the things that God instituted, when forgotten, whether it was Sabbath, whether it was the year of Jubilee, they suffered eventually from it. How true is that for us? Because we don't do that now because we got all these stuff we can spray in our fields or our gardens. So we don't give them the year off. That year seven, they're still got to go to work. There's actually been big companies that start doing this. This is where we get the idea of sabbatical. Uh, the sabbatical is you work six years and you take a year off. How many of you have done that? Z- one. Missionary. <laughs> Why? It's to give your brain time to reset, to give your brain time to, to redo it. And actually, there was a lot of tech companies that did this, and one of the people that worked for Apple, he went on sabbatical and came back and invented the iPod, the first one. And uh, several tech companies did this because they realized when people were coming back from a sabbatical, their minds were sharper. They had time to refresh and reset and enjoy time with their family that they might not have been doing. But most of those tech companies have since canceled it because when people would go on sabbatical, usually their spouse would also be working or something, and they would be so busied up with kids' games or whatever it was that they never actually went back to work. Or they'd go back to work having never rested the entire sabbatical. So these are all ways that God has mandated for humans to rest in the, under the law. We're not mandated now, but the concept is still there of rest. And I've been told I need to tell you, I think most of you know, Tab and I are going on sabbatical this summer for three months, and we can't wait. So we've been gone for three months, just so you know, everything's taken care of, it's been in the plans. We were supposed to go last year, uh, but last year Derek came on staff and we moved three times and we said, we'll pray about it, we'll go next year. Uh, So this summer, Tab and I will be gone for three months, don't call us. Why to reset? But you also have to ask yourself, what is true rest? How do you rest? Don't answer that. Where do you find your rest? And is Jesus involved in your rest? Is there delighting in who Jesus is? Is there spending time with him? Is there ability to uh, reset? There's another really good pastor friend of mine who's going to be coming and speaking in a couple weeks and actually a really good friend, Pete Dickinson, who's been here before, he's going to actually be coming on and preaching on sabbatical and what that is, hopefully, in the next month. But we are both talking about both of us are at the heaviest we've ever been in our lives because we've gotten it on such bad habits. 
And so we're going to spend three months of not having to work and instituting good habits and healthy habits so that when we come back, we're adding work to that rather than trying to add the other things to our work. Anyways, there's a whole thing about that. None of that was on my outline. But how do you find rest? What are the measures that you take? Do you, do you schedule rest into your personal lives? Do you schedule things? Because most of the time, the schedule rules. What's on the calendar reigns supreme. And so how have you scheduled that into your life, and what does rest look like for you? But weary and burdened is how the people felt under the law and the rules of the religious leaders, is the people that Jesus was talking to. But Jesus fulfilled the law, and he offered freedom. The freedom that only Jesus could offer, Jesus offered here. Um, I had a really good friend, still is, his name is Brandon Capuano. He's a, actually a church planner pastor in Rochester, New York. We went to college together, found out we lived 20 minutes away from each other. Became really good friends. So I go over to their house all the time because uh, his dad, uh, his name's Tom Capuano, we called him Papa Cap. He made homemade raviolis and his mom made the most amazing sauce. And we would go over there and we'd end up playing board games and eating till midnight. But he had this game called X-Men. It was the X-Men board game that I think he had in middle school. And so he'd always want to play it, and his family loved the game. I learned to really, really hate that game. Here's why. Long ago, the directions got lost or thrown out, and Brandon was the sole retainer of all the information, of all the characters in the game. And no matter what my character I chose, it couldn't win. He would say, oh, that one can't turn left. That's his superpowers, he turns left. And he'd say, no, 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 that one can't turn left, so I, I win again. And it was just, no matter what, and it was so frustrating because I was like, he's making these rules up as we go along. And everyone's like, no, it's fine. He knows the rules. Well, how come it's so pointed against me? Anyways, we ended up living together, going to college in Indianapolis, and that game was with us, and I want to throw it out so many times. I say that because that is what was happening with the religious leaders to the people. It seemed like no matter what you did, you just couldn't live up to the standard of the religious leaders. And they worked and they tried. And there's always another rule that they disobeyed. There was always something else that was getting in the way of them to be able to follow God. And the Pharisees wanted to make sure of it. What that called, that is called self-righteousness. In other words, I've attained a status that I feel I've done a great job at. And the best way for me to maintain that is to constantly point out what you are doing wrong. To constantly point out where you have failed because, man, does that make me feel better. And that's what the, the core of self-righteousness is. That was the core of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And surprisingly, that same mindset exists today. Maybe, like me, you grew up in a church and it seemed that there were man-written rules that you couldn't find in the Bible and you couldn't find them written down anywhere, but people were more than happy to point them out to you when you disobeyed them. Or there was these unwritten rules that you couldn't figure out. And that was really tough to grow up in. Because mankind will always be prone to relying on oneself, and when they feel inadequate, they will point out what someone else is doing wrong to make themselves feel better. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus uses this as an example. It shows a, a Pharisee, and he's praying to God, and he stands with his arms wide open. He says, God, thank you so much for allowing me to be me and not sell. Thank you, God. 
man, have I got a list of stuff Sal does. And it says, God didn't hear his prayer. And then there was a tax collector viewed by the Jews as the scum of society that no one would associate with except other tax collectors and sinners. And the tax collector falls down on his knees and cries out, God, I am unworthy to talk to you, but please forgive me. And it says God heard his prayer and forgave him. So the people were under this this burden of a law. They were under a burden. And again, we still experience that at church today. We still experience this list of rules, and that is who Jesus is talking to. And he's saying, if you're weary and burdened, I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. And this is a a picture of discipleship. Uh, How many of you know what a yoke is? Not part of an egg. I really wanted to actually bring in a yoke. My youth pastor actually had like this real solid wooden yoke, and uh, it was really heavy, and he would love to have kids come up in the front and try to wear it, and I don't have one. I couldn't find one laying around the church. Um, Unless, of course, there was a big cardboard box, and I asked Derek to grab that and some duct tape. This is a poor representation of what a yoke is. <laughs> Derek, Derek said, just imagine if you had given me 30 minutes to make that. A yoke was used by, uh, they would take two different farm animals, and it was used to carry a heavy load. I was actually going to have kids come up and do it, but we are, oh, we're perfect on time, by the way. And... They would, this was a heavy beam, and these would actually be made out of very solid wood at the time. And they would put it over the animals' heads, and it would to keep them from separating, and you'd attach it to a plow or a wagon, and they would pull it. And you had to match it up evenly, because if you had one big ox and one small one, your fields would be plowed diagonally, and they would pull each other. And they, you had to figure out how to get animals to work together in perfect unity to be able to do anything on the farm and accomplish anything that you could. And so this was to keep them in line and to join them together. But it was hard. It was heavy on the animals' necks. They would work all day pulling this thing as they would be working in the fields or or pulling carts or pulling a mill or whatever it was. So the idea that he said to take my yoke doesn't make sense. He just said, I will give you rest. But the picture that he's using here is one of discipleship. He's saying, take my yoke with me. If you come with me and you take my yoke, please understand that we are partnering together. And if you think that you are evenly matched with Jesus, you are horribly mistaken. Because he's saying, he says, take my yoke with me. And then he says, and learn from me. Take my yoke with me, and I will teach you how to do this. You can learn from me. And really what discipleship is, and here we just, we, we, the definition of discipleship at Hope Church is helping someone move one step closer in the relationship with Jesus. That's it. It's pointing people to God's word. Why? Psalm 1, 1 through, C, 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one who does not Walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. 
but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his, de- on his law day and night. That word delight there means that is where he finds his satisfaction completely. That is where his soul finds satisfaction, is in the word of God. Verse 3 says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. Not the sign of tired or weary, but the sign of fruitful and beneficial. Proverbs 1.7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So he's saying, come and learn from me. I am the way that will teach you. I will teach you wisdom, and I will teach you if you partner together, if we are yoked together, and you are now following me. And then he says, for I am. I want to stop there. For I am. This, the entire Bible is describing who Jesus is. This is the only time in Scripture that Jesus describes who he is. And he says, I am gentle. Another word is meek that we saw in Matthew chapter 5, for the meek will inherit the earth. He says, I am gentle. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, He says, Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Completely opposite of what the religious leaders were. And then he says, I am humble in heart. That word humble goes back to the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 where it says Jesus who is sitting on the right hand seat of God who is in command of all the angels came to earth as an infant helpless baby. That is a beautiful picture of humility but it doesn't stop there. He would grow to become a man that would be mocked and beaten and killed for you and for me. That he took our sins on him and he allowed his very own creation to murder him because of his love for you and for me. That he was put in the grave, knowing that that must happen so that our sins would be buried and forgotten, and then what we call on his name, we have forgiveness of those sins. That is humility. The the creator, Jesus, came to earth as a human, his own creation, and then allowed his creation to murder him. That is a sign of humility. So when Jesus says, I am humble in heart, that is an enormous understatement for us. But he's humble in heart, meaning that he is humble as well as easily accessible and approachable. There are no errors about him. Anyone is welcome. We are told to live this out in Romans 12, 3. It says, uh, do not put any errors. Do not think higher of yourself than you ought to think. And then fifth verses 15 and 16 says, be willing to associate with people of low position. Understand the person who had lived what they thought was the best life coming in contact with Jesus, there was zero comparison about how good they were. All of us have fallen short of perfection massively when compared to Jesus. And yet Jesus was with the leper. He was with the beggar. He was with the blind and the deaf. He was with the dirtiest. He was with the Samaritan. He was with everybody that the world said not to hang out with. That is who Jesus ran to and opened his arms up to and said, come to me. Orland continues, this is who he is, tender, 
open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. That is who Jesus is. And then he goes, and because of that, he says, and you will find rest for your souls. I had a pastor friend tell me a couple months ago, and he looked at me, he said, Rob, you're the kind of tired that sleep doesn't help. I said, oh, so good to see you too. The kind of rest for your souls is the kind of rest that sleep doesn't help. The soul is the immaterial part of a person which is uh, actuating cause of who they are. It is made up of their mind and their brain, and the soul represents who that person is at their core. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give your soul rest. He says, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an oxymoron. A yoke is not easy and burdens are not light. It is the exact opposite of the definition of burden. A yoke represented work and labor, weight, because rest is something that only Jesus can provide. Soul rest is the only thing that the creator of rest can give us. Why? Because Jesus bears it for us, or he provides us with a community in a local church to be there for us. So, no, we're not evenly matched with Jesus. Jesus is bearing the whole thing. We're just there for the benefit of knowing Jesus and partnering with him and going along in life with him. And he in return has given us, and this is a gift, church should not be a burden to go to. Church should be the place where we are excited to go to, to see the other people that we interact with, that we are open with, that we share each other's lives with, that we pray for, that we are there to encourage and be with. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. That word restore is so important. It means to bring back into a a healthy way, bring back into a spiritually healthy order. And you should do it, and that word there, gently. You should do it in a way that is going to minister to their souls. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. In other words, people that are hurting a lot of times go on the attack, and it's easy sometimes to just join with them. So so be careful that you don't also, that you're not tempted to go into their sin with them. But then verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We are supposed to be there for one another. We're supposed to be there and make sure that when somebody is hurting, we immediately jump in, no questions asked, so that we can be there to help. Verse 3, if anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, 
The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. It is a priority for us to take care of the people that we find ourselves in, in a family of believers. I want to actually jump up. It's not up there, but Galatians 5, verse 13, talking about freedom in Christ. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. When we love each other, Jesus said that there is no law. When we are loving God and we are loving each other, that, we, that took care, that sums up all of the laws and the prophets, is taking care of each other. So, how do you respond to Jesus' invitation? Number one, understand, you are invited. You have qualified, you've done it, you are invited to take Jesus up on this invitation. You're tired, weary, burdened, in need of rest. Whether you realize it or not, you are probably wanting rest for your innermost being, your soul. And that alone can only be found in Christ. Number two, you can experience rest. When we respond to Jesus' invitation, you can experience rest. We are not, please understand, we are never promised an easy life. But when we are partnered or when we are yoked together with Jesus, who is our strength, who is our hope, who is our peace, our comfort, and joy, he is the only one that can offer us the forgiveness we so desperately need, then no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we can have these characteristics of God. Knowing Jesus is knowing true soul rest. True rest is in him alone, both on earth and for eternity. And then number three, and this is the hardest one, it takes humility. Uh, James 4, 6, the last part of verse 6, he said, God gives grace to the humble. In order to be humble, you and I must be able to come to an understanding of our need for Jesus. Right? Everything sounded good until we have to call out and say, Jesus, I need you. We don't like having to rely on someone else, especially a being that we cannot see. But humility starts when we realize who we are. We realize our desperate need for a Savior. We realize our desperate need for the rest that can only be found in Him. And we humble ourselves to call for help. Again, humans are always prone to self-righteousness because it plays into our pride. We want to appear like everything is all good and that we did it. I accomplished it all by myself. I'm that good. That is never the act of humility. Humility is an understanding how awesome God is and that I am just a sinner saved by grace who is in desperate need of him. When we take that approach, we are able to carry each other's burdens. We are able to help each other out. We are able to do things that are very difficult to do because we are burdened for the other person's soul and we want to see them know Jesus and find their rest in him and to live in spiritual health with him. 
It takes humility to be able to understand that we are sinners desperately in need of God and his salvation that can only be found in Jesus. But it also takes humility to provide an atmosphere at a church that's not built out of additional qualifications that are nowhere found in Scripture. It takes humility to be able to work with other people who in any other form of life you would not get along with. But because of the unity that only Christ provides, we can come together as a family and a church and take care of each other. And it takes humility to live out these characteristics. As we have to live out these characteristics of Jesus that he demonstrated for us as part of a family, of a body of believers here in the church. My question for you as we close is, have you done that? Have you called out to Jesus? Have you made him the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life? Everything that he did, he did because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. So if you have never done that this evening, our prayer is that you call out tonight, understanding who you are and understanding who he, who he is, and that you ask for the forgiveness that only he can provide, that you understand the love that only he can give. And we would so appreciate, please, the whole reason we exist is to be able to have that conversation with you. The whole reason that we do church is so that we can have, we can find out how we can come alongside of you and help you and pray for you and answer questions that you may have. And we don't know all the answers, but we'll try, or we'll take time and look them up. So anytime tonight, after the service, please come find me or Derek, anybody you see up here. Um, if you've never been here before, we kind of have a party after church. I think we have a bunch of yard games and cornhole and there's a playground and there's a bunch of stuff out back and coffee and water um, and free bread. Derek's going to tell you about that. But we want you to know we love you and please, please, please don't let the opportunity pass this evening to talk about Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to know you the opportunity that we have, the invitation that you've given us so that we can know you. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here this evening who has never called out to you, that they would call out to you tonight. That today would be the day of salvation, that they would know what it is to find their rest for you, their soul rest for you. Lord, I pray for those that do know you. Lord, they're tired and weary. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to call out for help. That we'd be willing to call out to our brothers and sisters in Christ and be able to rely on them as they live out your characteristics. Lord, I pray that you give us strength to live out those characteristics that you have called us to. That we would not do, grow weary in doing good, but that we would press on. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.